0: Came at the perfect oh, time. At the perfect
1: goddamn time. So, you already uh-huh. know I'm, I'm just trying to figure out You to do your shit at 160. With- I said, uh, I said, I said, Jerossi is a great fighter, he's <laughs> fighting 130 pounds. No, Man. he said, yo, be my what? Yo, be my what? He's a great fighter, he's fighting 130. I think he'd be like, Machigo, make your fucking mind up. What you want? You silly, tossed You're starting to say all these big words, I'm starting to take it as disrespect.
0: Sometimes in boxing, you see things, and they just make you happy. And they make you happy because even before the dream was ever put into a structured plan, you'd heard about it and you understood it and you saw the belief in the eyes of the person who said it. And I always go back to speaking to Lawrence back in 2016 and he had just come back from the Olympics. He had his Brazil shirt on and it was me and him outside the Golovkin-Brook way. And we're just having a chat. We're talking about the Olympics. We're talking about what he wanted to do next. And we're talking about his ambitions, all the stuff that you tend to talk about. And we talked about some of the old days about, you know, how come he never ended up fighting Ricardo slew, who he thinks would have won. We are just having a laugh and a joke, just two boxing people, you know, shooting the breeze. So two things struck me in talking to Lawrence. One, how incredibly humble and modest he actually is. Because when we're talking about Rick, the first thing he said to me is, he's like, I know Rick's your guy, so I can't really be too tough on him. But he said, I think I would have beaten him whenever we fought which is a fair point. And I said, I respected him for that. Other guys would have dragged him and said this and said that, but he didn't. But the second thing that struck me is how big Lawrence is. He he occupies more space than you would assume. So when you stand in front of Lawrence O'Coli, you know you're stood in front of a big man. And so when he said he was going to compete at Cruiserweight, I've just, in my head I just thought, this guy's going to be very hard to beat, irrespective of... How skilled he becomes—he's just going to be incredibly hard to beat. And I remember that because it's always stuck with me. You know, those two things about Lawrence have always stuck with me. What a genuinely nice guy he is. Number one. Number two. How big he is. And on Saturday, I think we saw both elements come into it. And this is someone where in the in the Acoli Chamberlain builder. I can always remember just the back and forth between the various camps and people caught in the middle and there was a lot of talk about this and I remember thinking in my head and I said this to Isaac after the fight I remember saying to Isaac do not feel down about the result because I promised to God no cruiserweight is going to beat Lauren S'Accoli. but at that time you know, when you've had a defeat you're not trying to feel that but I was adamant that there would be no cruiserweight that would beat Lawrence Cicoli and I said to Isaac this fight in a couple of years' time, you're going to realise it wasn't such a bad result. And I think history is now forcing us to go back to that fight back in February 2018 or whenever it was and go, Isaac's up there. You'd put Isaac in with Glavatsky now. Based on what you've seen, you'd put him in there with him. Would you put Isaac in with Bradus? Give him a few fights. But you're not, suddenly we're not scared anymore. We're not scared because... The ideology shifted now. You don't need 25s to be ready for Braiders. When you're ready, you're ready. Get in there and have a fight. Win, lose, or draw. And, you know, that mindset's what's got Lawrence to where he is. And so, really, I want to congratulate him. And I want to tip my hat off to, to Umar Sadiq. Because he was one of those people who, even before I understood it, Umar would just tell me, he's like, I don't think Lawrence can be beat at Cruiserweight. And he'd say that. He'd say, if Lawrence sticks to his boxing, there's no one out there that can beat him. And he was saying this in 2017, even before that. And I remember his exact words were, I've been in the ring with him. I catch people with certain shots and he's not falling for anything. And if I can't hit him, those cruiserweights can't hit him. And back then you're like, eh. Nah. But then you see the evolution. You watch him go through it. He went through the, the Chamberlain fight the Askin fight, um, even the Blaze Mendo fight, which I thought was a good benchmark for him because Blaze is as tough as they come. And we've seen this evolution all the way through to Saturday night. Up until that point, we were, we were really preparing for jab, jab, hug. Jab, jab, hug. And all of a sudden we saw a looser, calmer, more aware of Kohli, a, a guy who actually used his eyes to work out what was in front of him and he reacted and he responded and you saw a mature performance. You saw a guy who came out, executed a game plan to win a world title, and it worked. Now, for me as a boxing fan, forget what I do in the sport, for me as a boxing fan, that's mind blowing. Because it just looked so clean and so clinical that I'm almost thinking, how good was Glavatsky? Was he any good? And I shouldn't be thinking that because he was. Okay? He was, that's a more than credible opponent. If you're gonna win a world title, that's the guy you want to win it against. You don't want to win it against a guy like Charles Martin, whatever anyone tells you. You don't want to do it that way. You don't want to win a belt on the scales. You want to win a belt fighting someone who's held a world title before. Because that tells you you belong at that level. Lawrence belongs at that level, and I do not see him losing a Cruiserweight. And so you ask me a question. If Usyk was still around, would I say the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I, I don't think Usyk would have the answer for that either. I'm just being honest. In the interest of balance, we also have to talk about the reality of the cruiserweight division because whatever we want to say, the cruiserweight division is a European division. That's why in, in pretty rapid succession we had... Uh, there are seven of them out there? There's Akoli, there's Hay, there's Bellew, there's Nelson, there's Macronelli. Carl The Truth, Thompson, and I think they had Glenn McCrory on Sky, so I think he counts as one as well. I don't know if I've got all seven there, but hopefully I have. And so we're always going to do well in that division, and we're always going to do well in that super middleweight because it's a European division, really. Canelo's making it interesting now, but that's obviously for his own agenda. But generally, these are European divisions. And so there's that thing that says, well, Coley's never had to fight an American. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I still don't think... There's an American out there, sub heavyweight that gives him trouble. Maybe if you boiled Wilder down to cruiserweight, he might make it entertaining, because they're pretty similar, in that they they rarely commit. But I don't think I don't think it's a beat. He beats O'Coley. I think I think a is head and shoulders above the other cruiserweights. So then you ask the question, is he the best cruiserweight we've ever had in this country? And I say, we can't say that yet. He, he, he would need to comprehensively clean up. He'd have to do an Usyk to push himself ahead of guys like David Hay. Or he'd have to have a long stretch like Johnny Nelson did. Th- those guys put it down and we shouldn't downplay their achievements because in the moment we get it super excited by what Lawrence has done. Now, do I think Lawrence beats all those guys? All except David. I just don't think he beats David. David was David was one of those guys who was literally too fast and too strong for most people. And he catches you eventually. So I'm, I'm 70-13 in favor of Hay winning that one. But it's not unanimous by any stretch of the imagination. So we all need to pause. And we need to say in 16 fights, Lawrence Okoli made us all believers. We now do not question his world-level credential. And this is the level of respect we have for what he's done. We're now looking at the, the heavyweight names we think Lawrence could be. <laughs> There's no greater praise than that. Like, this feels like Holyfield in the late 80s when he was just making his, his leap to heavyweight from cruiserweight. So let's give thanks that a British boxer has arrived at world level and is a factor at world level because I think that's incredible. In terms of the actual fight itself, what I'm going to do to you guys, for <laughs> being honest, I'm going to refer you to Polish Boxing Twitter, which incidentally is far more entertaining than British Boxing Twitter. In, someone's going to say, why would you say that? answer is very simple. They have such amazing ways of describing things. So I think they described Glowacki's left hand as only being useful for scaring flies. I think mean, that's probably one of the best descriptions of a, of a punch I've ever heard in my life, so <laughs> I give thanks for that one. But what they picked up on, and I think it was really interesting, someone asked the question, why was Glavatsky so bad against Akoli when Spilka was so good against Wilder? And I think this is a really good question because it goes to the heart of what makes Akoli hard to beat. Wilder will get complacent And Wilder believes he's going to land that one shot, even if he loses all 10 rounds. He actually doesn't care about winning rounds. He cares about letting that right hand go. And so that gave Spilker all the opportunity he needed because Spilker would just simply take the dominant position and get his lead foot outside of Wilder's lead foot and tee off when he wanted until he got stopped brutally. Ocoli doesn't give you that. And this is the difference in pedigree. Ocoli isn't giving you easy rounds. You're not just going to chalk up rounds against Ocoli. He's going to try and win the rounds and grind you down. And when, when you've played all your best cards and you've suddenly realized he's not even out of second gear, then he'll turn it up on you. That was the big difference. The big difference was Ocoli had the tools and the experience and the mindset to not give up rounds easily, which Wilder didn't have against Spilker. You know, even on those occasions where you'd see Glavaski, you know, try and pin O'Coli down by holding his foot, O'Coli stance is so wide that he could just rock back and he was out of danger. It was just comprehensive. And even the punch that ended the fight, that that kind of semi-straight right hand, jeez, he didn't fully extend it. He almost snapped it. If you if you watch that punch back, he snaps it in. And he just recoils back in case there's a counter. That defensive responsibility is another hallmark of his evolution as a, as a boxer. It was just an impressive show overall. He, he didn't take too many risks. And because he was so smart in his positioning and how he navigated the ring, he didn't have to tie up. He didn't have to tie, tie up. So it was, it was a good performance. Was I surprised that Globaski didn't have a better approach? Yes, but then I think to myself, what are you going to do? Really, if you're going to try and get to a Kohli, you've got to get past the lead hand, right? So you've got to get around his left hand. Now, you can go, you can go outside of his left hand and try and work there, but it takes too long, and by that time, he's reset. Or you can come the other way, but there's a right hand waiting for you, as he found out. So actually, Cody makes it really hard to attack him if you don't have reach. And it's going to be interesting as his career develops to see how he copes when someone has an equal, if not superior, reach to him. That's going to be really interesting. I'm not saying he'll lose. What I'm saying is it will mean Lawrence will have to fight in a different way. So he'd have to, he'd have to engage more, if that makes sense. And that's going to be interesting. And I think that will just bring the best out of Lawrence because when you fought as an underdog your whole career, from amateur through to pro, you know how to win and you know how to be tough. So these things aren't going to be questioned in Lawrence. I'm really looking forward to seeing him in matchups where the physical attributes are more or less similar. I think I tweeted on Saturday night, I'd quite like to see him against uh, Big Joe who just fought Tony Oka, I know Joe can make cruiserweight and he's really strong at cruiserweight and that means they're about the same height and the same width in terms of wingspan. It'll be a good fight. Am I saying Lawrence loses? No, I'm not saying Lawrence loses. I'm saying it's a good bridge fight between what he's done with Glavatsky and what he wants to do with Bradis, because Hearn's not going to give him two world title fights in a row. It's just That's not how Eddie Hearn tends to work unless you're Joshua. So there's going to be an intervening fight between world title shots. I think Big Joe would be a good fight. People laugh when I say it. I think React is a decent fight because it's a chance to build British interest in Lawrence before you then say, right, pay-per-view for him to unify, which is where it's headed. And if you're going to do that, you need to give him a name the fans recognize. And, you know, for all the criticism React Paul gets, React Paul has the dimensions where you think he could give Lawrence trouble. He's working with Angel Fernandez, so we need to see the the fruits of that labour. But why not? I'm, I'm not averse to that fight. But I do want to see him fight someone big, because that's going to give us a good indicator for what happens when he moves to heavyweight. But overall, you've just got to give the man his due. Absolutely brilliant performance. And not only that, think about what you've seen Lawrence deliver in the last few months. He's done the book. He's done the singles. He's active on social media. He will respond to people like he did with Dwyer yesterday. He's absolutely brilliant. he He's the star that boxing has wanted. Yeah, This is what you guys wanted, right? He's got those sort of Dave Allen traits, but he's delivering world titles as well. So I think we should all get behind him and let's hope this is what we're going to see going forward. But some things I did find interesting. So... I would be worried when McDonald's get a tweet out congratulating Lawrence a lot sooner than Joshua did. I don't think Joshua got one through till Sunday, if I'm correct, right? Whereas McDonald's was straight in there. Congratulations. Almost like they had it ready to go. Which is what you do when you're a slick operation. And the fact that it took that long for any acknowledgement of O'Coley's win on any of Joshua's platforms is a it's a worrying sign. And I'm not going to say I'm going to read too much into it. It would just, it probably just, it's not what you want to see. And you almost wonder if Joshua watched the fight or someone had to tell him the result, then he jumped on YouTube. I you know, you wonder. That's all I'm going to say is you wonder. But fair play to McDonald's for, you know, I'm not going to call it grifting, but they definitely jumped in on the moment, you know. And I always think that's pretty smart just to associate yourself and you never know, that might be an ongoing partnership. The other thing I wanted to touch on is, and I've read some tweets of people saying, this proves that Shane McGuigan's a great trainer. Look how many world champions he's delivered. And I don't think that's fair. Not necessarily. This isn't even a Shane thing. It's not fair on Brian O'Shaughnessy. And it's not fair on the guys at Dagenham Boxing Club who helped Lawrence come forward. Now, what I saw... Uh, Saturday night, I was going to say last night, but no, Saturday night, was pretty much the elements that Brian O'Shaughnessy taught Lawrence. There's a lot of Brian O'Shaughnessy in that performance. What Shane has added, and be absolutely clear, Shane has added something. Shane's added the polish that was needed, because that's what Shane's really good at, and I really respect Shane for his ability to to distill what wins, to distill what works, and then just say, look, we're just going to focus on this. He He's always clear in what he's going to focus on. There's no deviation. There's no trying to do things just for the sake of it. It's all focused on a single purpose. And I think it was just to smooth out some of the rough ages Lawrence had. And then also just to get him confident in how he performs. You know, Got him some good sparring. I think having Thomas Carty in camp was really good for Lawrence. I think having guys like Freezy in camp were good for his spirit. I think he's, he's had a good time. I know he did some work with Derek. Lawrence has just done it the right way, and I think having Shane there gives him that, that precision and that focus that you probably need at world level. So I think, look, it confirms Shane's a hell of a trainer. But when you talk about great, you're a great trainer when you create somebody. When Shane takes Chris Benham-Smith to a world title, then we all need to just line the road with rose petals for him because that's a sign of greatness. You've got to take someone from zero and we've got to see how they go. I think Shane was fantastic. I think he did well with Fowler. I think he did well with Lawrence. It's the same theme with those guys. He simplified what they do. He gave them the confidence to execute. And he gave them a plan and said, look, this is what we're going to exploit. Just trust the process and we'll get there. That's a good trainer. And those who have followed my my podcast journey understand I've always been high on Shane McGuigan as a trainer and continue to be so. But I just worry when I hear people start talking about greatness and so forth because Shane's smart enough in the sport to understand he needs that 0 to 100 guy. And then there'll be no question. The same way that Virgil Hunter will forever be able to dine on Andre Ward. The same way Eddie Futch was able to dine on Joe Frazier, Ken Norton. You know, these things happen. Adam Booth dines off on David Hay, too. You need that zero to 100 guy. And I think Shane will get one. And then when he does that, then we can say, right, this is a top guy. Because what we end up doing is we end up disrespecting guys like Joe Gallagher. Because if you call Shane great, you've got to call Joe Gallagher great. Because Joe delivered belts month after month, year after year, and he doesn't get these accolades. So we just have to have a balanced perspective on these things and not go overboard, is what I'd probably say. But you have to give you know a tip of the hat to Shane for delivering once again. To be honest, I thought I thought last night was a night of. Good performances. I thought that was an uptick in how we feel about British boxing. Let's not lie. It was good to see Cody get the win. I was actually quite happy that Fowler got the win and he did it a lot more impressively than I thought he would. And you've got to give him his due. He seems to be on the comeback trail. And I think if you go back to what I said about Shane, I think that's perfect for Fowler. He was always trying to do too much when he fought. Uh, he had that belief that he could knock anyone out and then he had the belief that he could outwork anyone. But I think there's more of an intelligence to what he does now. You know, just manage the psychology of the fight and then when you need to turn it up, turn it up, catch him off guard, get your win. But, you no, know, kudos to Fowler. I'd like to see him fight that Garcia guy that gave Cheeseman trouble. But I also understand right now the, the domestic agenda is probably more important for him. Just clean up a few of these guys, JJ Metcalf, Ted Cheeseman and Scott Fitzgerald. And I think he can do it. And I, He's grown on me. I think the, the the Fitzgerald defeat was necessary to just call calm the noise that was coming out of Fowler's camp. But it was, you want to see him do well. And when people say, why? Oh, he's this, he's that. You have to remember Anthony Fowler has one of the most legit amateur records this country's had. Like, of his generation, he's probably the most legit guy. In terms of who he beat as an amateur and how he did it, he's as legit as they come. So I'd quite like to see him at least cement himself at British level, and then sort of push for that European and maybe world honors. But I just think one, five, four is so stacked, and it's stacked with not only killers. Yeah, it's not just that they're killers, but they—they're all killers that can box. They're all killers who are intelligent. They're all killers who are great decision makers in the ring. And I don't know if Fowler can close that gap in the immediate future because. Like, I don't want to jump on my hobby horse again. I just don't think British trainers have those raw materials to to take you to that level. And, you know, I think time is proving me right. I think the actions of a lot of British boxers are now proving me right. But I will tell you which trainers have it right for an absolute start. The trainers at the Lynn. So I want to tip my hat off to guys like Terry Pearson, Rob Edwards, who's now in the Far East, you know, definitely not sharing the boxing gospel out there. He's just enjoying life. And all the other guys who have been at the Lynn in various forms because without them, you don't get Ellie Scottney. And this is what, here's how I'll explain it. On Saturday night, you got to see two people from two clubs that were literally sister clubs. So the history of the Lynn is that during the war, and I think it was post-war, Fitzroy Lodge and the Lynn kind of palled up because it made sense to, to work together in a time of crisis. And that's why their kids are broadly similar. So the Lynn, white vest, black shorts, Fitzroy Lodge, white vests with black hoops and black shorts. And the hoops were introduced to tell the difference between the two clubs. So we're like sister clubs. We've, you know, the, the bonds between the clubs are pretty strong, we all get along. But we're fundamentally different. I I describe Fitzroy Lodge as the accountants of the boxing world. You know? Fundamentals on point. Do we make mistakes? Nah. That's how our fighters are. All competent. Right? Not many, not many loose boxes come out of Fitzroy Lodge. The Lynn? The Lynn, it's like your heavy metal stars, but they have all sorts of styles in there. You know, they'll have guys in there trying to do a street fighting style. Do you see what I mean? And that's why you've got guys that come out of there like Spencer Fearon and you know Wayne Alexander, Danny Williams. I mean, Ian Lewison. The list goes on of guys who came out the Lin, and you can tell because they all have their unique style and flavor. The Lin's a good hotbed for that. And into that came Ellie Scottney. I think Louis Lynn was there as well. But you can still see that in Ellie Scottney. you can see that she absorbed all of those elements and they allowed her to grow that way because she doesn't box like any other female boxer in this country nowhere near nowhere near she's she's got so many elements I look at it and I go you're too young to have these elements that's how I go, wow you've got all of these elements there are bits of it when I watch her in one round and she'll remind me of Juan Manuel Marquez another round she'll remind me of Cotto now I'm watching and I'm like she she has everything and the beautiful thing about where Ellie Scottney is right now is she can pare it down she can detune some of the punches she can ramp up some of the other punches which is a much easier proposition than having to teach someone everything from scratch she has everything in her locker it's just about how do you package it up for the opponent in front of you. So now compare her performance with Ramla Ali. Now, Ramla Ali's performance was good. And if you, if you turn the sound off completely, you'll, you'll come to the conclusion Ramla's incredibly elegant. Now, people assume Terry Fitzroy Lodge, you must know Ramla. Never really spoken to her. She joined the Lodge when I'd left, and she left when I rejoined. So we've never really spoken, but I know her family really well, and we have so many mutual friends that we're kind of in each other's worlds. I'm a fan of hers. Like I told you, I love, I love that word elegant. She's elegant when she boxes. I love how she conducts herself outside the ring. Her family are incredible. Like the energy and the, the humility they have is awesome. Like I've got a lot of time for Ramla, And I enjoyed watching her box. So where, where ramblers, all those good things you get from the Lodge, you know, fundamentally sound, doesn't make many mistakes, you know, but there's none of that kind of, there's no, x Factor is not the word. There are, no, there are no special effects because that's not how the Lodge does things. And then Ellie's got the, I mean, all the tricks in the book. Because that's how the Lin tend to do things. The Lin will have the more expressive boxes. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I think those two have to fight. But I thought it was a it was a useful contrast to have. So you could just see those different styles. And no one would have picked that up unless you were, you know, kind of in that world. But there's a big difference there. Now, fair play to Ramla. I know she's looking at the outside chance of the Olympics, and I think style-wise it makes sense for her to stay the way she is if she's going to go to the Olympics. Post-Olympics she might have to start sitting down on those shots and being a bit more ruthless and nasty but she can do that. I have faith in her. She's a she's class act. In terms of Ellie, I I just smile. You know, I remember I used to hear the, the Ellie Scottie name back in like 2015 and the boys at Lynn were just like, mate, she's the real deal already. And you're like, Ugh. And I'm one of those. I'm like, oh God, I hear this every week. Someone's discovered the next whatever. Uh. And then you'd see little little bits. Like, you know, you might be at a show and you might see some youngsters and then she's just there and you just go,
1: hmm.
0: And so it builds. But it probably wasn't until sort of like the the tail end of her amateur time because she went off with Sam Mullins to, to Nemesis before then – going to Churchill's with Sam. It was more the Churchill's that I got to know her as a person. And she's so, like, she'd come into the lodge and she'd be really quiet. Like, I didn't know she was as vocal as she is. And I'm enjoying this side of her, the fact that she's so vocal because she was quite humble and she'd come along with Harry Mullins and he'd do some sparring. And we'd always say, look, you can jump in and do some work. But she's always humble. and go, no, 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 I'm okay, thanks. But she was just a class act. So when she turned pro, I was like, yeah, I wish her all the best. I think she's got a chance. Duh, duh, duh. And then the Beck Connolly performance was just like, oh, oh, this is how you want to box? This is how you really want to do this? He's going to hit her with double and triple hooks and upper, ooh, who taught you this? What? And you saw a lot of it with the lady, I think her name's Meili Gangloff as well. Just Elle did what she wanted in there. Now, I promise you, if there was a world title on the line in the stakes are higher, Elle could happily stand behind a jab and break her down with a jab if she needed to. But with these two-minute rounds, it doesn't really work that way. You've just got to score your points in the two minutes that you've got available. And that suits her as a combination puncher. There were points there where she was just throwing that lead uppercut. You know, And I thought that was elegant. Ah, oh, it was beautiful. Not so much elegant, but it was beautiful. She just, Just a little dip, shoot the uppercut straight through the middle, which a, a punch not many Brits do. Well, we know Povetkin can do it, but not many Brits actually throw that punch, which surprises me. But I think we need to do that more often. And she was, she was good with the right hand. There's the point in that fight, may may have been like round four or five. And she threw one of the crispest one-twos I've seen a boxer throw in a long time. And it's a pow! And I just thought, she has everything. Now it's on her, you know. And like when her and I speak, that's the message I always play back to her. How great do you want to be? As you ask yourself that every 15 minutes, how great do you want to be? And make sure your actions reflect that, because she can go all the way. I'm not going to say she's better than Katie Taylor. Katie's achieved so much more. But what I can say is she's got the headroom, because you've got to remember, Eddie Scott 23 years old. And so she's still in that kind of like, like if you look at it from an endocrine perspective, She's still in her prime breeding years. So she's highly estrogenic, which makes it hard to to build and retain muscle. And what will happen over time, depending on how long she wants her career to be, when she gets to like 27, 28, and that that starts to shift, she'll be able to, to retain more muscle. She'll get stronger, and she'll be able to sit down harder on her shots. That will come, because if you look at people like Katie Taylor... Katie's there now with that level of physical maturity. Uh, Natasha Jonas is there now with that level of physical maturity. You know, Terry Harper's on her way as well. So Ellie scotty has got another decade at least until we see the best of her physically. So how do you manage that career going forward? That's going to be an interesting one. But she's definitely got everything in her favour and we should all get behind her because she comes to entertain. And that's all we ask for as fans. So let's just blitz through the rest of the card and just, just try and understand what's going on with Joe Cordina. If you remember post-2016, people were talking up Joe Cordina as being a guy that should win world titles at 130 and 135, right? I remember this. And I'd speak to guys like Big Donald Smith, and he was telling me Cordina was the real deal. And I started to worry when he was the guy that was getting left off certain shows. So I know the the Joshua show in Wales, he ended up not fighting and there were a couple of other incidents like that. And his career just seemed to lose momentum. And now you kind of look at it and you say, so what? who's there at 130 for him? Heard of any name of note? Probably like a Tevin Farmer. Um, Frampton and Herring, other side of the fence. Yeah, you could dig at Lee Selby, but it looks like Lee's committed to 135. There isn't really anyone for Joe Cordina to dance with of any major note. And he's almost missed the boat because... Of no, not even inactivity, but he's just missed the boat. So we're coming up to five years post-Olympics, and we still don't know how good Joe Cordina is. And he's had to watch guys like Fowler, just, not Fowler, sorry, O'Coley, shoot off into the stratosphere. And he he's nowhere near that. He's, he's watched Connor Ben go from novice to world title challenger potentially, and he this has all gone past him. And he said, well, so what do you do if you're Cordeen? Like, he needs a statement performance. He's a guy who needs to just take a risk. He's a guy who should be saying to Eddie, I'll fight Burchell. Just let me give me a name of that level. I'll fight Burchell. I'll fight Valdez. I have to. I have no choice now. How else am I going to accelerate my career? So let's see him take a few risks. I don't know if you can move him along slowly anymore. Like he's he's gotta put he's gotta put his nuts on the line. It's as simple as that. I feel something similar about Chris Bidham Smith, but I like Chris Bidham Smith because he's a he's legitimately a good guy. Right. Chris is a guy you could sit down with and have a pint and have a good conversation. He's intelligent, he's steeped in boxing, he's a keen student of it, he's he's a good guy. And so I'm watching him on Saturday and I know it's a kind of like a stay busy fight and you know, the guy he fought had given Nick Parper all kinds of hell and I think he put him on his backside. But Chris Smith doesn't need those sorts of fights. He's not young. He's got to be 30 or 31 now. I think it would be my assumption. So you've got to get him in there with guys like Tommy McCarthy. You've got to start making noise for him to fight in Isaac Chamberlain. You know, maybe there's a rematch to react for. But he needs to be getting stuck into a lot of these guys. If you want to go to the U.S., put him in with Tabithi. You yeah. He's, you, you could put Bill and Smith in with all of these guys because he's a he's a competent enough boxer. He can do what he needs to do. And I'd like to see him moved along quickly because he's also an inter- interesting and entertaining guy. And Shane's done a fantastic job with Chris. You know, he has. And I've seen Shane work with him from 2016 when Kev Thornley used to bring him up and shouts out to Kev, you know, He had a tough result on Saturday night with his man Lee Cutler losing. And he came out with an amazing Instagram post, which I think encapsulates how all trainers feel, where you feel gutted, but you know you've got to be strong and positive for for your fighter. But you've also got to give due respect and credit to the opponents. And he said something interesting that I quite like. And he said he finally got to stand in front of Ricky Hatton, after spending thousands of pounds traveling, you know, to the US to watch him box, and I thought every trainer goes through that moment where you're just a fan for a split second, of you know, because you're around all the people you used to watch on TV, and I just thought that was a really beautiful way of articulating how you sometimes feel when you bump into these people you used to look up to. But Kev is doing fantastic things on the south coast with Steve Bendel's gym. And I hope he can get a scene going up there between Bournemouth, Southampton and Portsmouth. I hope they can get something going where it becomes another hotbed of British boxing because he's, he's a good boxing brain. He's a really good guy. Um, I know Craig Scott linked up with him when they were in New York. It might have been for the Frampton fight. So yeah, big shout out to him. And you know, obviously he'll be rooting for Chris and smith like we all are. I, I just want to see everyone being competitive because that just gives us better fights. You know, I've touched on Ramla and look, I think Ramla's class, there's ne- you'll never hear me go against Ramla because, you know, she's part of the group, she's part of the gang and I wish her all the best, you know, she, her story's incredible and, you know, look, you've been on the cover of Vogue, you're boxing on TV, she's going to parlay this into a hell of a career going forward and she, she's got the brains for it, so kudos to her. But I think that's a, that's a fair summary. I'm trying to think what else was, was interesting on the card. I think it's time we bring back Nick Halling. I, I'm, I've tried to defend Adam Smith. I just can't listen to any more of Adam Smith. And I don't even know what it is. It's not even him personally. It's just I'm bored of hearing people's life stories as a reason to be watching them box. I'm like, no, they're here to box. You know, I don't want to know what's in their re- national record of achievement. I don't want to know what Duke of Edinburgh award they got. I don't want to know what happened when they went caving in Kilvru Manor in Wales. I don't want to know any of that. I want to know what's going on in the ring. I want to know who they're fighting next. I want to know why certain fights didn't happen. And he never tells us that. And if you're not going to tell us that, just get Nick Halling in there, who seems to be damn good at calling a fight. And I'm also done with Macklin as a commentator. No, nothing personal against him. I'm just done with him as a commentator. Yeah, I'd rather have Bell you on there. Have someone on there who's a straight shooter when, when it's time to be a straight shooter. Even Shay McGuigan's questioning Macklin's scoring and saying he needs to go. So I think, I think when Sky look at rebooting their, their boxing proposition for the new season, they need to look at what they're doing. Too many people familiar and comfortable. They're not trying hard. No one's hungry to be a pundit on Sky anymore. Weird enough, Johnny Nelson's the most hungry pundit on there and people like to take shots at him. But when the camera's on Johnny, Johnny knows how to deliver for the fans. I think the rest of them have got a lot of work to do because like I just zone out now. And that's worrying because BT aren't that much better either. Maybe I'm just getting that boxing fatigue all of a sudden. But to be honest, guys, I'm going to jump out here. As soon as you finish listening to this, your first question is going to be, he hasn't talked about Virgil Ortiz versus Maurice Hooker. Don't worry, that's coming next. Okay, But I wanted to keep this on British for now. Um, the Virgil Ortiz episode is there's a wider question isn't there how the hell they're getting 22 year olds to, to be monsters in America we're kind of struggling here but that's another discussion for another episode so thanks for listening guys and take care anyway, man. Nah, you got my name in
1: your mouth. I must be your favourite you were taking it out focus, I am getting paid next, pay proper a check, what? You ain't making me vexed, you're making yourself just look stupid, that you hating the test, what well, I hate misplaced was just making me progress until I'm late to rest, fuck all my haters, yeah, oh, I don't like you, well fuck you too, how much hate I go through, you ain't even got a clue, I know there's even people listening who hate on me too, you know what I gotta say to them, fuck you too, I don't chat people's names, they will get up in people's business, what i witnessed, cause spreading shit is vicious Especially when it's demanding, leave it to your missus The only thing it least do is you, getting a split end He done that there and she done you Spreading rumours about people is something you don't do When they find out you chappled, they're coming to hunt you, confront you Some don't talk, they'll just lump you, fuck you, from there on You wanna talk my name, fuck it, man, we're enemies I do my best to make your whole life a living out pussy or remember me Remember me Damn Favorite flavor? You were taking it out, hating on me, major man. I ain't breaking a sweat. Too focused, how I'm getting paid next, pay paper I check. What? You ain't making me vex. You making yourself just look stupid. that you hating the test? What that hate misplaced was just making me progress until I'm late to rest. Fuck all my haters, yeah. Why do people start hating cause their life elevate elevating. They just stand still and they're jealous of what you're. Hated at your patient I'm sure you gather by now haters for slacks and waste men who don't follow their own path. They stay chasing pavements. They could even have more than you, but they're hating and faking. is like all they do. How you react to one of your haters is like all they do.